Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a Covenant Renewal Worship Service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Our confession this morning is taken from Proverbs 19, verse 8. He who gets wisdom loves his own soul. He who keeps understanding will find good. This proverb repeats itself. It is good to love your soul. And getting wisdom and keeping understanding are synonymous. Now the question is, how does one get wisdom and how does one keep understanding? First, we can turn to Proverbs. It is the book of wisdom, right? Well, at the beginning of Proverbs, we read that wisdom calls aloud outside. She raises her voice in the open squares. She cries out in the chief concourses. At the opening of the gates in the city, she speaks her words. How long, you simple ones, will you love simplicity? For you for scorners delight in their scorning, and fools hate knowledge. Turn at my rebuke. Surely I will pour out my spirit on you. I will make my words known to you. Whoever listens to me will dwell safely and will be secure without fear of evil. So wisdom is a lady offering her counsel and advice, and she's accessible. She calls aloud outside. She raises her voice in the public square. God doesn't work in the shadows. The laws by which society are governed are visible. A man needs to open his his eyes, he needs to consider, and he needs to listen. And when he does, he will see that patience and prudence, diligence and excellence, honesty and virtue are all valuable and worthwhile blessing those who possess them. Wisdom doesn't hide. Second, also at the beginning of of Proverbs we read that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And Jesus reiterates this when he tells us how to get wisdom. Jesus tells the parable about how fathers know how to give good gifts to their children, and if we, being evil, know know that, we know how to give good gifts to our children, then how much more will, will our Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. Now this is the same as the proverb in two ways. One, a Christian definition of wisdom is seeing things the way that God does. In other words, seeing them the way they really are. And what better way to do that than to be inhabited by him in the person of the Holy Ghost? And two, seeing God the way he really is, almighty, righteous, holy, sovereign, and just, That is what it means to fear the Lord, and this is the beginning of wisdom. This reminds us of our need to confess our sins, so if you're willing and able, please kneel as we confess our sins. Today's text is the culmination of Paul's argument, which he started in chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 9, he argued that we are justified by faith like Abraham was. In verses 10 to 25, we saw that Christ fulfilled the law and the promise superseded it, making us sons and heirs of God, which was verses 26 to chapter 4, verse 7. 
Last week we saw how Paul clearly loved them and is willing to suffer for their sakes because he desires their correction. But today we see what the, the extent of Paul's conviction is and the risks the Judaizers are running. So Paul has a jumping off point here. He says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? Paul starts where the Judaizers want to land, the law. The Judaizers claim the law, and they claim Abraham. Well, this is what Paul says that the law has to say. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise. What Paul is saying here is that Isaac and Ishmael, being the sons of Abraham, were fundamentally different in essence. One being born of a free woman, and the other being born of a bond woman. A slave. And not only that, but the son that was born to the slave, Ishmael, was born according to the flesh. Meaning, not by promise. But the freeborn son was born according to the promise. What he's talking about here is something that he's been talking about all along through his arguments. The difference between promise and law. And he's saying Ishmael was consistent with law. It was consistent with man's works earning them salvation. Abraham and Sarah had been given a promise. They've been given a good promise. And they, and they were seeking to fulfill that promise when, Hagar, when Sarah gave Hagar to Abraham as wife. They wanted the fulfillment of the promise. But they were seeking it not by faith, but by works. So there's a distinction here between the promise, the law, faith, and works, and it goes all the way back to the foundation of Abraham's line. So Paul's argument here, the point is, is that the difference between what the Jews were saying for the way, about the way of salvation and what Christians were saying about the way of salvation was evident in the law that the Jews were trying to bind the Christians to. It was not only evident in the law, it was evident in the foundation of the Abrahamic line. And they were related in the law. They were given to us in the law. This story is in Genesis 21, verses 1 through 14. Which I'm going to read briefly. Genesis 21, verses 1 to 14. And the Lord visited Sarah, and he said, as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had spoken. For Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the set time of which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Now Abraham was one hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made me laugh, and all who hear will laugh with me. She also said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah should nurse children, for I have borne him a son in his old age. So the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the same day that Isaac was weaned. And Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, 
scoffing. Therefore she said to Abraham, Cast out this bondwoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, namely with Isaac. And the matter was very displeasing in Abraham's sight because of his son. But God said to Abraham, Do not let it be displeasing in your sight because of the lad, or because of your bondwoman. Whatever Sarah has said to you, listen to her voice, for in Isaac your seed shall be called. Yet I will also make a nation of the son of the bondwoman, because he is your seed. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water, and putting it on her shoulder, he gave it and the boy to Hagar and sent her away. Then she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. So that story is in the law, and Paul is referencing that story. Sarah and Abraham decided to have Hagar be Abraham's wife in the first place in order to fulfill the promises. But they were following the promises by works. Hagar was a slave, and she had a son who was Abraham's son, but that son was not the son of the promise. In fact, when God came back to Abraham after Ishmael was born and told Abraham that Sarah would conceive, Abraham said to God, look with favor upon Ishmael, because he didn't, he didn't know that God was going to bless him through Sarah, and he didn't know that God was intent on blessing him through Sarah. Well, he knew that. God had told him that. He didn't believe it, and he already had a son whom he loved. So Paul is using this story, and he's using this story in his argument here for the Galatians. But he says, the next thing he says is, which things are symbolic? And this is interesting, because this is Paul's hermeneutic. He's taking the Old Testament, the Old Testament law, which is a story. It's a story about what happened in Abraham's life, and he's making an application about how those things happen. And this, this affects how we see the world. If, if, Paul, if Paul can take the scriptures and, and make application for the, 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 the Gentile Christians, if, how, he, how he does that is important for us to consider because it will affect how we are to look at the scriptures. Now the Greek word for symbolic is Allegorumina, which is where we get the word allegory from. But it's not specifically an allegory. The story of Abraham and Sarah is not an allegory in the English sense of the word allegory. In the English sense of allegory, it's, it's, it's a fictional story that uh, has two meanings. One, a, a meaning of, of what's going on in the story, and then a spiritual meaning. This, the, Greek the, the Greek word has more flexibility in that it doesn't have to be a fictional story. Paul is saying that what we read in the Genesis account is a type. It's a type for us to learn from. And there are, the, there are those who think that Paul is stretching the boundaries. He's, uh, he's, he's using his authority as an apostle and, and the fact that he has the Holy Spirit to say things about the Bible that we shouldn't try and, 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 and do because you'd be swimming in the deep end. Um, but Paul seems to expect the Galatians, the Galatian Christians, to follow his argument. He's, he says this, but this is an allegory, obviously, right? And then he says, um, uh, sorry, 
Uh, which things are symbolic, for these are the two covenants. The one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which has Hagar. So, so he's saying, this is, this is symbolic, and this is what it means. Now, his her hermeneutic is legitimate and valuable in ex exegesis, but why? How is it that Paul can look at a story that happened thousands of years before and make application uh, based on how things fell together and happened for the Christians that were living in Galatia. And it's because God is sovereign. God is sovereign. God is writing a story in the world. God has revealed himself to men in his word and in history. So when we read the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, that's the Torah law, the Jewish basis of their, of, their, of their people and the basis of their, their community, and we read, read the prophets and we read the, the history of Israel, all of those things are valuable for us to learn, uh, learn from. That's why we read in Timothy that all scripture is God-breathed and valuable for, for correction and reproof, etc. So the stories of the Bible are both historically accurate, so they really happened, and symbolical for us. To draw from. They're, they're valuable for us to look at and, and make application. Look at what's going on there and say, how does this apply to us? Who, we, when we read those stories, we need to be reading with them with an eye to, who am I in this story? Where am I in that story? And who's, who's my Goliath? Or who's my, uh, who's my Saul? Um, and those sort of things are really valuable because they teach us how to look at the world. Because God has given us a revelation of how he works in the world. Now the fact that he worked that way for Abraham is consistent that he works that way forever. He works that way. The, the way God works in the world is consistent. So if we look at how he's worked in one instance, we can apply how, how God is, who he is, since he's unchanging, to us. And then just make sure that we have the faith of Abraham and not the works of Ishmael. The works of Hagar. Now God's story, while it, he's given us a, a type, he's given us a, a, a road map for how he's working in the world, is not boring. God is eminently interesting. And, and you might wonder, well, if God's already told us how he works, and we just know that's how he works, then doesn't that get old? But it doesn't, and it, it's, it doesn't get boring because it's eminently interesting because it's like an excellent mystery novel. God has put all the pieces together, and he reveals himself over and over and over again in layer upon layer upon layer of history and the Bible and experience. And every time we get a greater revelation of what God's doing in the world and how he's working in the Bible, how he's working in history, how he's working in our lives, he opens up more light to us, and we see, we see it with through new eyes. We get to go back over all of it again. Every time, there's, it's like the first time uh, you become a Christian. It's like, whoa, everything fits into God's framework. God made me, he made the world, and then he sent Jesus to die for me. And, and we, we experience this revelation of peace with God, salvation. This, this knowledge of Jesus Christ as a Savior, and it changes the way we see everything. And so then we start looking into everything. You start reading the Bible and start trying to understand, how does this happen? Why didn't I know this before? 
And, and you, you go back and you look at it, and you understand more. And every time you grow in your faith, that happens again. You say, you know, you look at it all over again, it's all through new eyes, and, and you're slapping yourself on the forehead saying, why didn't I see that before? Now this is the way God works on every level. When Jesus was walking on the way to Emmaus with the two disciples, they didn't, they didn't see him. They weren't, he didn't reveal himself as Jesus Christ yet to them. But he was in revealing himself to them in the scriptures. He's saying he worked all the way through Moses and the law and the prophets and, and, the, and, the, and, and the Psalms. And, and when he revealed himself to them, they looked at each other and said, Did not our hearts burn within us as he was revealing his, his, the, the, what, what had to happen to the Messiah on the way? So it works that way for new Christians. And that's the biggie. That's worse. Our job as Christians is to be witnesses for Christ. We go out those doors, we go into our lives, and we live with Christ as our Lord, and we are witnesses for Christ. And, and really, that's, that's the dividing line. That's the dividing line between all of the works of the law and all of the belief of faith. So on the one hand, you have faithfulness, you have, you have peace with God, and it's all based on God's work. His grace and His kindness, and all it is is a simple laying down of myself and a looking to Jesus. That's the big E on the eye chart. And, and, and that, that, what, what that reveals there is that God is God and I am not. I'm a Christian. And a Christian knows that God is God and I am not. And so when we go out those doors, our job is to profess God is God and I am not and you are not. We are, we are all Men that are fallen sinners, and we all need Jesus. We all need a Savior. So, so this is this is the thing. This is the walking through the doors. It's just stepping over the threshold into faith. It's stepping over the threshold into belief. Is that's the first place where God reveals Himself to us? Is that I am God, you are not. And so, but then for maturing Christians, it's it's learning to grow and apply new convictions. It's learning to read God's Word. And understand it. It's learning to read the law and apply it. It's learning to look at Paul and, and looking, how's Paul doing this? And then how am I supposed to imitate Paul like he's telling me to by doing that? So maturing Christians, we need to learn, we need to grow, we need to apply what we learn and what we as we grow. And, and what we find as we do this is, is blessing. That's, that's what obedience is. When we obey, God blesses. So when, when, we, when, we, when we read our scriptures and we get convicted of things, uh, we need to serve Jesus, and we need, it, it means more than just baptism and church attendance. It means more than just showing up. It means giving our hearts over to God. It means giving our service over to God. And it might affect how we work. It just might. It might affect how we live with our, within our families, how we love our wives. How we give ourselves for our children and our grandchildren. How we serve our neighbors. How we heal and, and bind up the wounded and the sick. How we dress and feed the hungry and, 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 how we, uh, and the naked. And how we, how we take care of those who have needs. It just might affect those things. And it might even affect what church we attend. Consider that. I mean, many of us, we're Reformed Christians. We believe the Bible and we believe in the historic Reformed faith, but a lot of us didn't start out there. 
And, and for those of us who grew up in it, uh, as we grew up in it, we, we started to understand it more richly and more fully. And as that happens, we need to worship in spirit and in truth, which means that as we understand what God's revealing in His Word, we need to. We, we sometimes it can draw a conviction that we cannot continue on in, in, in a way that we've grown up with, and that might affect what church we attend. And it never stops, even if you find the church that fits you perfectly. You should never stop growing. You should never stop looking to God's Word. You should never stop seeking Him and loving Him and, and desiring Him. And, and he, there should be a deep-seated hunger for God in your soul. And that hunger never goes away because you can never fill it. You can never fill it, and that's glorious because that's the kind of hunger that's just a real blessing on your soul. Because God is that great. If God filled you up with himself, you'd explode. You'd be consumed. That's what happens when the prophets go in the presence of, of God. They say, woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. And God has to purify them and cleanse them. But every time an angel comes and appears to a man, an angel comes and appears to, to Mary, uh, as Zacharias, they fall down and start worshiping. And this is just, he's a mere creature. God is that much more than that. God is infinite, and we are finite. And, and you just cannot fit the infinite in the finite. So we, as finite beings, we will always have more to look forward to, more revelation to seek. And it's a glorious thing. Heaven is not boring. And that is a misconception that exists in our society. Some kids grow up thinking, well, I don't want to go to heaven. They stand around wearing... Uh, playing harps and wearing halos. That's boring. God's not like that. God is not like that at all. God is all-consuming. And that brings us full circle back to our text. What is Paul revealing for us here in this exposition of the symbolism of Abraham's story? This, this text that we're reading is, is the Bible. It's Scripture. The Bible is revelation of God. It's interesting. So what is Paul's revelation here? For these are the two covenants. The one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. Now we, brethren, or as Isaac was, are children of promise. But as he who was born according to the flesh, and then persecuted, then persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, even so it is now. So first we have uh, Hagar, and Sarah. They're two covenants. They're two covenants. One's from Mount Sinai, and one's from the Jerusalem above, from, the, from Mount Zion. And Paul makes a similar comparison between, uh, between these two covenants in Hebrews 12, verses 18 to 24. For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire. You've not come to Mount Sinai. And to blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of the trumpet and the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. For they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches that mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid. 
and trembling. So he's describing Mount, Mount Sinai right there. That's what happened when God gave the law, the people, the, the, the mountains smoked and the ground trembled and lightning and fire. And that was really scary. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. So what Paul's saying here is not only uh, that there's two covenants, but the covenant with Sarah, the covenant of Mount Zion, the covenant of the heavenly Jerusalem is much greater. The covenant at Sinai was a mediation. Remember, we talked about this a few, few weeks ago. The covenant at Sinai was a mediation. Moses was a mediator between God and the people. Now, we're dealing directly with God. It's, it's a direct, direct line of connection. Jesus Christ and you. And Jesus Christ is God. And so, this is how much more glorious, how much more holy, how much more scary on the one hand. On the other hand, how much more wonderful and how much more grace. And that's part of what Paul's point is here. When he says, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. That's more grace, people. The law defined the people, the Israelites. One nation under the heavens. Of all the nations, one was set apart. The law defined that people. The second covenant, the covenant of grace, was a blessing for the Gentiles. It was a blessing for the whole world. And it came through that one nation, but it was for everyone. And so the covenant of Sarah has many more children. Now, in our text we read, For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is. That Greek word corresponds to means it, it lines up with, or it's in a row with, which is a good way to look at this. We've got two options. You've got two covenants. You've got Hagar and you have Sarah. You have Ishmael and you have Isaac. You have bondage and you have freedom. You have limited progeny. Only a remnant will be saved. And you have unlimited progeny. A blessing for the Gentiles. A blessing upon the whole world. Righteousness will cover the earth like the water covers the seas. You have the Jerusalem below which was coming to destruction at this point in history. And you have the Jerusalem above, which was rising. It was, it, was, it was the Mount Zion. It was the rock that became a mountain that filled the whole earth in Daniel's dream. You have Mount Sinai, a mountain on the earth that smoked. And God gave the law. And you have Mount Zion. It's God's mountain. It's that same mountain that's filling the earth. And it's God gave the law, but it's written on our hearts. It's not written on tablets of stone. You have the desert and Mount Sinai. You have Mount Zion in the promised land. It is the promised land. You have the Mosaic law. You have the Abrahamic promise, which antedated the law. The, the, law, the promise was given to Abraham. It was greater than 
than the law that Moses gave. You have works-based salvation, and you have grace. You had the appearances of fulfilled promise, and you had the realities of fulfilled promise. You had the unbelieving Jews and the Christian church. And what's really curious is the, is the relationship that the two have with each other. It's a persecutor-persecuted relationship. Hagar's son persecuted Sarah's son. The Jews persecuted the church. Ishmael persecuted Isaac. The Pharisees persecuted Jesus. The Jews persecuted the apostles. And the Judaizers persecuted the Galatians. Now Paul's point here and the point of his whole argument so far has been that there are two ways of going about it. Spirit and flesh. There are two Jerusalems, two mountains, two covenants, and the distinctions are manifold and clear. It's not confusing. God has revealed himself and God is light. There's only one salvation and it's by grace. This passage recalls Jesus' experience with the Pharisees, revealing how confused the Pharisees were about freedom and bondage in first century Judaism. John 8, verses 31 to 36. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will, be, you will be made free? And Jesus answered them, Most assuredly I say to you, whoever commits a sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Now this is something that Paul has down pat. He gets this. Paul understands what Jesus is saying. Jesus is God's son and he's made us sons and heirs. We are free. That's the whole point of what he's been talking about. We are free. Jesus has set you free. You are free indeed. Jesus is the truth. He set you free. He has it, Paul has this figured out and this is what he's been arguing about all along. Christians, you are free. So what are you supposed to do about it? What, what does Paul tell them that they're supposed to do with this freedom? Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Verse 30. Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. What are you supposed to do with them? You're supposed to get rid of them. Get rid of the legalists. Get rid of those who want to work and earn their salvation. Abraham had two sons. Ishmael was every bit as much Abraham's son as Isaac was. But one of them was not to be the heir. So what does Abraham do? He casts him out. He gives his mother a, wine, or a water skin and her son and kicks her out. And there's two thoughts about this. First, Abraham was distressed by Sarah's command. Abraham didn't want to kick them out. He, he loved his son. 
But God ratified Sarah's command. Abraham did not want to do it, but God told Abraham, no, Sarah's right. You kick her out. And second, in the symbolism of this covenantal discussion here, where there's two covenants, who is Abraham? Abraham represents the father. God the father. He's the father of both covenants. He's made sinner and believer alike. We're all gods. The covenant was between Israel and God and between the church and God. Those are the two covenants. So Paul is telling the Christians to declare the precarious situation upon which the Jews have placed themselves to them. He's telling the Christians that they need to warn the Judaizers that they are at the risk of losing their salvation if they do not repent and turn to God looking for his grace. To ask God to cleanse their house. Now, the church is definitely a place for sinners and penitents, as were the Judaizers. They were sinners. They were persecuting the church. And sinners belong in the church. That's where we want them. So God tells Abraham to cast them out, though. So why, if the church is a place for sinners, why is God casting the sinners out? Well, the answer is, is because it's a place for sinners, not for false prophets. The Judaizers were not simply sinners looking for salvation. They were false prophets proclaiming a false gospel and a false god. They were trying to say that you can be closer to God by this route than you are. And the Christians in the freedom of the possession of the Holy Spirit ought to have known better. They had the revelation of God. They had the Holy Spirit. The church cannot stand by and allow false prophets to proclaim a false gospel. It must cast them out. They must do so like Abraham does with God's instruction and blessing. It's when the church exercises church discipline, it's something that it must do in submission to God's word and to his ways, which means in love. Seeking the restoration of those who are excommunicated. The church is a place for sinners, and what the church wants is for the sinner to repent so that they can come back within the fold. But the church may not allow false prophets to continue proselytizing within the fold. We cannot allow wolves within and to live among the sheep because it will destroy the church. So the first thing that Paul tells them to do is to cast out the son of the bondwoman and the bondwoman. The second thing he tells them to do is chapter 5, verse 1. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. And do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. The mechanism by which all of this is to be accomplished is by faithful standing in liberty. We need to not allow ourselves to be bound by false prophets. 
Christ has made us free, therefore be free. Accept grace, demand grace, and reject the slavery of submitting to any form of salvation that is not grace. God's grace is free, it's kind. God comes down to our level and loves us. He, he dies for us. He gives himself for us. Jesus came down. He was born. We talked about how he was born this morning. He was born in a, in a manger. He, he came down. He, he could have been, been born. In, we sang about this in one of our songs this morning. He could have been born however he wanted to. He was God. But he, he came down and was born in the most low place you can imagine. With the cows and sheep. He had shepherds coming to glorify him and honor him in his birth. He wasn't born in a palace. He wasn't born with the, the, uh, the wealthy or those who had the best health care or the most sanitary conditions. No, he was born in a manger, born in a, born in a stable. And he came down because he loved us. He gave up status. So this freedom that Paul's talking about here is a freedom to love. Which means that sometimes Paul is willing to be a Jew to the Jews and be a Gentile to the Gentiles. Sometimes he's willing to eat with the Jews, but not to the exclusion of Gentile Christians. He circumcised Timothy so that he could minister to the Jews. And he refused to circumcise Titus because he was ministering to the Gentiles. Sometimes you do things just in order so that you can communicate with those you're trying to communicate with. But it doesn't mean you're submitting to their laws. You're, you, you don't need to submit to any laws. No law binds you. You're free. You have the Holy Spirit. You have Christ. You also have a message. And that's what your job is, is to get that message out. And don't let anything get in the way of that. Recognize that you have God. You have Christ, you have the Holy Spirit, and the, the whole point of God's coming down here is to share Him with everyone. If you want out of the darkness, look to the light. If you want to see how the story plays out, you, I remember I was talking about that mystery before. That mystery is interesting. Mystery, mystery movies, uh, novels, they're fascinating. You, they're page turners. Because you want to see how this is going to, what's going to happen here. What's at the end? Well, the story of the world, the story of God's work in the world is the greatest and most glorious mystery there is. If you want to see how the story plays out and to discover the glories of the gospel mystery, turn to Jesus and get rid of anything that gets in the way of that. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, let's pray. In our text this morning, we read that which things are symbolic. Well, God loves to use symbols. The law was a gift of a type, showing that God was holy. The sacrifices were a type of Christ, showing that blood needed to atone for sin. The Jews were a type of the church, showing how God can deliver from slavery, from Egypt, and how he can bring a people together. But types are not the fulfillment. And we have the fulfillment in Jesus Christ and our salvation in him.
God has shown us grace, and His grace has set us free. But God is still kind in giving us symbols. And we are about to use the symbol and sacrament of the Lord's Supper to remember that Christ has done for each of us what, what Christ has done for each of us and, and how He signifies how we are all drawn together into one body as the loaf is one and filled with one spirit as the cup is one. Our eating and drinking of the Lord is a glorious gift to us. And yet, it is a great mystery. But remember that God loves to reveal himself in the mysteries of this life. Now even though we cannot delineate how every bit of this works, we can know that God is good and gracious and merciful and kind. He's doing all of this for our good and for our benefit. And one more thing, this is the first Sunday of Advent and we look for the coming of our Lord in this season. The fact that his arrival is not complete is evidenced all around us. As Christians, we proclaim that he is already here. But as men, we see corruption and death, sickness and evil, sin and wickedness all around us. God calls us to be faithful and courageous in the face of all of this. Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. Jesus died, but that wasn't the last chapter of God's mystery. It was only the beginning. As this year begins, I'm excited to see what the next chapter God has for us is. This table is for all who are baptized and under the authority of Christ and His body, the church. Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.